Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. My name is Dr. Casey Patrick. Joining me today, as usual, is my medical director, Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. And we have a special guest from right here at MCHD, one of our in-charges, Brady Walding. How are you doing? And this podcast idea, this will be one of the first in hopefully a recurring series. Dr. Dixon and I have been working in the ED now for literal decades. And honestly, Monday morning, sort of our EMS reconvene time, where we trudge through the gory details of the weekend but it also usually entails both of us tend to work thursday through sunday in the emergency department in our day job and so all these years later from finishing you know residency back in the early 2000s I, i don't know why this was a shocker but it just sort of hit me we get together monday morning and talk about our cool cases and with both of us working at various locations here in the county now more than we probably ever have we have interactions with folks like brady every saturday night every friday night and we still tell our tales from the ed which was my uh, first shot at a at a name for this series tales from the ed and sometimes it's good sometimes it's amazing sometimes it's unbelievable sometimes these are screw-ups and Honestly, I don't think we should let those go to waste, especially when they inter- interact and intersect with our crews here at MCHD. No, because all the background work that, that you've done here on the podcast and all the things that we do on the podcast, right, are patient-centered. They're actually from your experiences or something you learned and applied to a patient. And I can think of nothing. I mean, that's the most enjoyable part of our job is taking care of patients and then better icing on top taking care of our patients with our own paramedics at the bedside and learning together and walking through these really difficult decisions. So I'm super happy for this. And, and we do spend a lot of time on Mondays talking about the, all the good gory details and the good, bad, and the ugly and things that we could have improved on, on cases we saw over the weekend. So on that note, I'll take the first episode topic as I've been stewing on this case really now I I wrote this and said over the weekend this is now progressed into weeks because it really encapsulate some of the problems when you translate early adopters in you know free open access education and the reality of the slow pace which which with which the establishment often adapts to that and where therapeutic momentum comes in some of the teaching that we've provided to our medics and how that interacts with subspecialists within the hospital with me, the EMS medical director and the ED doc on service at the time. And it makes for, I think what'll be an interesting discussion. So this case did start with Brady. Uh, again, one of our in charges here at MCHD has been here for a couple years. It does a great job taking care of our patients. And I was standing by the radio and heard his radio report come in. And this one piqued my interest as, as, one of two docs on in the emergency department that day. This one was going to be my patient. So I started listening from the very, very beginning. Brady, fill the listeners in on this patient, kind of how the call went out, what you were thinking as far as your differential diagnosis, what you saw and what you sent me. Right. So it was middle of the day, just normal time. Uh, we got dispatched to a sick person uh, T6, which is a low priority call. Uh, we don't go lights or sirens. Uh, we just drive as normal. 
And we're on our way there. We're driving through a, a pretty common neighborhood that we go into all the time. And it was coming out, 83-year-old female. Uh, she was nausea vomiting, right? So we start to get more details on our way to the, the call. And it starts saying, you know, pain between the shoulders, nausea vomiting. And we had a student that day, and I was in the pastor's seat. I looked over to my partner, and I was like, hey, when we get there, let's let's do a 12-lead on her, like, sooner than later. I said, this is like kind of screaming what I like to call like the little old lady syndrome, right? Because they don't always have the typical presentation. You'll see the crushing chest pain, the elephant on my chest. So that kind of, you know, got my mindset going with that. Uh, we got on scene. Um, she was sitting on the couch. She was awake and alert, but she just didn't look good. She didn't look like someone who was healthy. And she's, they're like, yeah, I started having sudden nausea, vomiting, uh, about two hours ago, I had this pain between my shoulder blades. She hadn't really been sick lately. She only medical problem was hypertension. She seemed like a healthy person, got around a bunch. And we initially started doing vital signs, and we had a difficult time even getting a 12-lead on her because she was vomiting so much. We were trying to control that, you know, try not to get vomited on herself, obviously, but try to get the stickers on, give her a bag, uh, and try to take care of her. Um, so we got our initial 12 lead. I was getting three lead on actually, and I could see that the three lead just didn't look, um, like I would want it to. Right. And so I was like, all right, let's hurry up and, you know, get that 12 lead going. Uh, we did the 12 lead and it came up with what I'd like to call like borderline EKG changes for STEMI. Like it wasn't almost enough, but it kind of wasn't just kind of depends on where you took it. And it was leads two, three and AVF little over a millimeter. And there was some reciprocal changes in AVL. And at first, I was like, you know, unsure about it, right? Because it is very borderline. It's not the five millimeters you see, and you're like, yeah, no doubt in my mind. Um, but like the medical directors like to say all the time, if you're 50-50 with it, lean towards the patient, right? Be a patient advocate. So I was thinking, okay, we have 12 lead changes. The story kind of makes sense. The sudden onset, pain between the shoulders. They also have that nausea vomiting. And she's a female, so not always typical presentation. And I was just like, this is kind of telling me that this is more cardiac than just some sort of GI issue. And I feel like we should treat it as a as a blockage. Right. Screams vascular, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Brady, I'm sitting there listening to this story and I'm thinking vascular, vascular, vascular. Right. Sudden, you know, not much acts like right. that. Now you got these wonky EKG changes. You got you know, pain between the shoulder blades, could that be inferior posterior or other stuff on our gnarly chest Absolutely. pain differential, dissections and PEs, some type of infection, other things that we think about as a serial killer. So right. I, I agree completely. And me and my partner were going through those serial yeah. killers on the way to the call. Like this, yeah. this doesn't seem just like your normal sick person call. Like let's go through some things that could be going on here. Like you said, the PE, the dissections. Really? I, I mean, this is a really cool case. I'm going to kick it back to Dr. Patrick. We talked about this a lot about the infamous when AVL matters in this ischemic EKG. Casey, you were the doc there. You get the EKG. And even before you get the patient, what's your first impression? Worrisome, not, you decide to call it. Are you worried about dissection all with the pain between the shoulder blades? Let's talk about your thought process. So this is where FOMAD and reality sometimes meet and don't necessarily agree because I looked at the EKG and I could tell from Brady's report, he was reading the report from one of our recent CEs, just like he said, you know, 
there, the reciprocal change, especially in AVL, was the key here because there really wasn't, and we'll post the EKG in the show notes, there really wasn't enough ST elevation in 2, 3, and F to say this qualified by STEMI criteria. It was really isolated ST elevation in lead 3, but there was very obvious T-wave inversion and ST depression in lead AVL without LVH, that big kicker there. So I knew the EKG was ischemic, but was it STEMI by criteria? Because I'm activating it with cardiologists who are trained and steeped in the STEMI paradigm. They're not always as versed in occlusion MI, non-occlusion MI. And so that came into my mind. Then there was the other competing piece that was pain between the shoulder blades, acute onset, in a hypertensive, you know, elderly patient, you know, dissection came into the into the forebrain really, really quick there. Oh, do we need to scan this patient first? Is this a dissection? You know, and I know the accuracy and the diagnostic, um, you know, aid of bilateral blood pressures and bilateral upper extremity pulses and those things are low, but I hadn't had a chance to lay my hands on the patient yet and feel those pulses, listen for a murmur, consider bilateral upper extremity blood pressures and likely CT. So what did I do in the face of this seemingly obvious ischemic EKG? I took the side route and that decision for us in the emergency department is activate, you know, the cath lab team, STEMI activation terminology that we use or, hey, Dr. Cardiologist, I'm going to text you a picture of this EKG. Would you take a look? And so we'll come back to that decision in a second. But really, the, the, the big problem in my mind was this STEMI paradigm versus occlusion MI. So I think Dr. Patrick is being, uh, like all emergency clinicians, a little bit hard on himself. Uh, that, you know, as he said in many other podcasts, right, this is not black or white yes or no look back at the podcast on airway protection right protect the airway versus patency right there's a lot of gray area in here and sometimes there's not a defining borderline we always like that in medicine don't we we like a yes or no answer we we like that answer just to pop up right sometimes it's in between casey so when you talk about i think that's a reasonable decision the patient's not there yet you don't have all we we have to make imperfect information but i always tell the residents i think it always is worthwhile in the patient's best interest to if you need to take a moment take a moment look at all the pertinent information you have and make the best decision you can sometimes that involves asking another expert another set of eyes there to take a look at i think that's completely reasonable sure so you when you if you follow social media you follow any of the blogs you follow some of the forward-thinking folks on the front end of the wave of of the occlusion mi non-occlusion mi pathway sometimes these cases are presented in a very black or white fashion so i felt fairly confident this was acute ischemia there was a flip t wave in avl without lvh there was really ugly morphology and especially in lead three, this one could have came out of Alma 2's Beware of AVL lecture, but I hadn't seen the patient yet. So that's that's the route that I took. Let's fill in the, the rest of the story. When, when Brady arrived, I had already texted the cardiologist 
with the EKG. The cardiologist on stated that concerning, concerning story, I'll be down to see the patient, but let's hold on activation, which is where I thought the story would go. So the first thing I did when, when Brady dropped the patient off was get them switched over to our monitor. I felt pulses. They felt equal. You know, I took, you know, Brady's report was, was spot on and stellar just as he just presented it. There, it was, you know, she still had her emesis bag. She was still very nauseated, still had pain between her shoulder blades. So my first priority was, A, repeat the EKG. Let's see where she is now. Because she was feeling some better, but she wasn't all the way better. Right, and we had treated her with like Zofran yep. and fentanyl in route to try to control a lot mm-hmm. of these symptoms. And, and she, was, she was moving in the right direction, but my thought was, it, even if this is occlusion MI, and we're not going to be able to activate immediately because of her symptoms being plus or minus dissection or EKG being potentially equivocal, at least I can get her pain-free while we're in the process, repeat some EKGs, well... EKG number two, which I will say number two because number one was the pre-hospital EKG, was even less concerning. I continued with antiemetics and analgesics, just just like you did. Kind of took took over that piece of it. Made sure I got a second IV, put pads on. I was I was, uh, you know, tr- trying to be as prepared as I could be. Uh, EKG three after pain and antiemetics was even less concerning than EKG two. So not only did her EKGs improve in the ED, her symptoms resolved. I was a little bit concerned because Brady had activated this as, as a stimulant, you know, from MCHD standpoint. I put the pause on that because of the reasons we discussed. And I actually went, circled back around and, and said, hey, man, you know, I, I'm not sure I did the right or the wrong thing because we talk a lot about occlusion MI, non-occlusion MI. We talk about the value of AVL. We talk about the EKG seesaw, whereas the more concerning the patient is, the more that 50-50 sort of paradigm of, of operate as a patient advocate. So you did all your things appropriately, but I missed out on one of the others that we talk about, and that's therapeutic momentum. I mean, so carrying on with the course of care that's already been put in motion is more likely, especially in a time sense of emergency, to get the patient treated. But before you beat yourself up too bad, I'm going to take a pause here. For the listeners out there, we all kind of know in the EMEMS world, ST elevation MI, STEMI, talk about occlusive MI versus non-occlusive MI and how that fits into the STEMI paradigm. Give them a five-minute background, not too nerdy, not too nerdy. Don't go 100% nerd on me. Just give listeners a little background on where that's coming from. Way back in the late 80s, early 1990s with the onset of, of thrombolytics and intervention for acute myocardial infarction, the idea was to, to come up with some paradigm with which to identify these folks based on an EKG. And the paradigm that was set up was the idea of ST elevation in anatomical patterns, inferior, lateral, anteroseptal. What never really happened in a very methodical way after the implementation of this foundation was, hey, how accurate is this STEMI paradigm that we created in actually recognizing occlusive disease? To boil it down, there are a lot of things that can cause paradigm ST elevation positive changes that are not occlusion MI or acute myocardial infarction. There's lots of presentations of acute myocardial infarction that may not 
precipitate true ST elevation paradigm positive findings on an EKG. What is the, what are those numbers? Probably somewhere between 20 and 30 percent, both false positive and false negative. So there are some cardiologists and some emergency physicians out there who are taking a more framework stepwise approach to identifying other changes on EKGs that also represent acute occlusion. That's hyperacute T waves. That's uh, posterior MI findings with ST depression in V1 and V2. That's De Winter's T, T waves pattern. That's um, shark fin T shark waves. fin shark fin pattern. That's uh, T wave inversion in AVL without LVH. So some of those things, and we've talked about these on the on the podcast before. I'll link some of those references in the show notes. The idea of occlusion MI non occlusion MI paradigm shift is to get out of the idea that everything that STEMI is uh, an MI and everything that's not isn't. And there are some previously classified in STEMIs that if we look at those EKGs closely and we learn pattern recognition, those are true acute occlusion as well. So they're trying to become more precise with less false positives, less false negatives in identifying acute occlusion because that's really what we care about. We don't care about the STEMI itself. We care about the STEMI as it represents. A big blockage, is gonna, that's what's actually going to kill them. And that's what we can intervene on. That's the second that's step. That's how the intervention works, right? That's why we're taking them there is A, to diagnose it, but B, to open the culprit artery and then usually stent it or put some support device there. But, yeah, totally agree. I mean, that there's false positives, as Dr. Patrick said, and false negatives, which mean every time we take a STEMI on paper to the lab, 20 30% of the time, it's not occlusive disease. And then the other 20, 30% of the time, what he's saying is we have an EKG that's like Brady's. It's not diagnostic. I'm putting my hands up in quotes that no one can see. But 20 to 30% of those that we don't think are going to be occlusive disease, in fact, are occlusive disease. And that's that big bucket that we call now NSTEMIs or non-ST right. elevation MIs. And the idea is, is, is that there is a subset of NSTEMIs who absolutely do benefit from early revascularization. When you look at that subgroup of NSTEMIs that likely benefit from early revascularization, they all fall into those EKG patterns of de Winters, posterior, hypercute T's, AVL, T wave inversion, uh, you know, so, so, you know the, the morphology uh, changes, the more concerning uh, morphology it's changes. It's not just troponin, exist. there are electrical changes yeah. that we can see. And that we could have used in hindsight to activate the cath lab and, and early revascularize. So before Dr. Patrick uh, takes his own medical license away for malpractice <laughs> here, I'll no, say that despite bad. the blogs and all the other things that we know from the, the foam frat world and all the, the, the data and research out there that's cutting edge, at the end of the day, you can't take away the human element, right? So you, I'm going I'm to be your advocate here. Both, both Brady and I will both uh, back you up on this, right? Absolutely. You had incomplete information. You had a nasty thoracic dissection potential in this little old lady, right? You had not laid hands on her. You did actually activate and get other experts involved early. Good call. You asked your partner. You got multiple EKGs. Once you got the story, the patient followed a reasonable clinical course for your reasonable decision. She looked better. She felt better, and her repeat EKGs were not as concerning as Brady's. So I don't think it's unreasonable for you to go there. I, I think you're being overly harsh on yourself here, but 
And I don't think it's, I get it with the therapeutic momentum, uh, but I, that's why I think this is such a cool Monday morning quarterback right. case. And I, and I did the same thing, right? I wasn't 100% sure, and I didn't know, but I had that sneaking suspicion that something's going on here, and I did the same thing. I went to a higher level of care and get some more advice. And really, what I, I beat myself up a little because that's the way we all do, like we said. What I really tried to think through is how to do this the next time. Is there room here to improve? It's a lot what if you sit down and run review with us on the other side of the table as medical directors, it's what we ask you to do on the medic side is I can't hit rewind on this one, but are there patterns in this case that you want to affirm and plug straight into your practice over and over and over again? Or are there places here you want to improve and say, eh, that wasn't the best idea. And in this situation, looking at it objectively, sometimes in the, in the blogs and on the websites and on Twitter and places like that, this case is presented as, oh, this was a missed opportunity for early revascularization. And the insinuation from my reading, and I may be reading and inferring incorrectly, is that somebody was overtly lazy or somebody didn't know the literature or didn't know the EKG patterns. And in this case, that's really not true on anybody's part. You know, you recognized it. You opted for the safe, safest action from your standpoint. You did that. The cardiologist was in the room echoing the patient within five minutes of arrival with the ultrasound. So the cardiologist listened to me, came in and saw the patient with their own eyes. Uh, the EKGs were repeated Q5 minutes. I had a handful of EKGs, and she got basic bedside care for the first 15 or 20 minutes. And thoracic dissection was ruled out fairly immediately via CT. We had IV contrast back then when this case happened, so we were able to do it. And in the end, no inaction occurred out of laziness. But, you know, did the right action take place? I don't know. That's a complex That's a complex question. Oh, no, this is going to be good because, actually, I think we're going to disagree at the end of this one as well, yeah. as we, we do occasionally. Yeah. So before we get there, Casey, just give us a spoiler alert. What was the outcome of this, lay? I'm dying to know. Like, these are like M&M cases, right? Like, I know something bad is about to happen well, here. Well, I, I included more than just occlusion MI and dissection, I thought, you know, pancreatitis, cholecystitis. She was a pretty darn healthy 83-year-old. Brady's correct. She was very functional, very ambulatory, but she was she was ill-appearing from a, you know, just kind of pale and just like she didn't feel well. And this looked like a lady that had felt well for most of her life and had been very, very functional. So I, I included some other uh, diagnoses in my, in my list. Lipase was normal. Um, you know, chest, abdomen, pelvis was ordered with IV contrast to rule out thoracic dissection. That was negative. No big nasty gallbladder, gallstones, elevation of LFTs or, or T-billy. But the first uh, troponin was negative. And so we thought, hmm, maybe, I don't know, maybe this was nothing. And the second troponin was 18,000. And the third troponin was about 30,000. So the tropes skyrocketed. And this was occlusion MI in the end. Um, and so uh, our concerns were valid, but man, this was a complex case. Very and it, complex. And it got and even, it got even more complex when the cardiologist actually texted me the next morning. And this is how good and, you know, the continuity was excellent. I mean, there was flow back and forth for me to the cardiologist. I mean, I, I, I'm in the same boat as the medics here. We always want 
feedback on our cases and to get it to get an unprompted text from the cardiologist the next that's morning, cool hey here's your update and it didn't go the way any of us thought because her troponins skyrocketed she felt better and then we ended up with a case of patient agency and patient wishes and she was 83 and heard the risks of cardiac catheterization decided that she felt better she didn't want to have a stroke and she deferred pci in the end which almost floored me because when you take this case as a whole it brings in so many so many learning points in that the patient's wishes and the patient's tolerance for risk has to be brought into play as well so if i got a do-over and I won't get a do-over on this exact case, but the one takeaway for me is that if I'm 50-50, I'm going to make the cardiologist stop the wave as opposed to the ripple. I feel like the curbside, hey, can you take a look, is a little bit like pushing the ripple towards them. Whereas if I just go ahead and activate the cath lab and the whole process that is involved with doing that, that it's a little bit tougher to, uh, to hold back. So maybe I could use a little more therapeutic momentum to my advantage. In the end, she would have probably gotten a stent had I done that because we probably could have pushed her a little harder as well. But I don't know. The next one may be a dissection too. Who knows? I'll play devil's advocate and say, you know, remember when we kind of jumped on the Europeans where uh, isolated ST elevation, AVR, remember this, Brady, with diffuse ST depression? Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a STEMI equivalent, it's a STEMI equivalent, and kind of the Twitter sphere is pushing that when in fact – the latest research comes out and says, well, maybe not. Maybe some of them are STEMIs, but maybe it's a PE or maybe it's some high, other hypotensive state. So I think you guys still had a lot of other difficult considerations. Here's atypical symptoms, right? Could be a lot of nastiness, could be nastiness in the upper abdomen, could be a dissection, really concerning with the hypertension, the pain, the sudden onset, vascular, vascular, vascular. And it, yeah, it could have been an atypical presentation of MI. So I think it, it's really hard, and that's why we're talking about, right, to sort these out. I don't think you, I, I think your practice in that, in this case, was very reasonable on everybody's standpoint. I agree with Brady activating it. I agree with you kind of putting the hold up on it and saying, uh, I'm not quite sure. You know, I think it's okay to not be 100% sure. And I think ultimately the patient is in the right place right, for, for all these emergencies, do we need to take them to vascular, revascularization as quickly as we can? Yes, this one was a longer delay, uh, but generally that time frame, you know, you don't start seeing bad outcomes in STEMI, I'm just talking about overall STEMI, until you get really over a couple of hours out from it. You know, the kind of the, the teaching is, you know, you got to get to the cath lab and get this thing cleared within whatever the new number is for today it's gone from 90 to 60 90 to 60 to 30 but the, but the thought the old literature had 90 and i will tell you that the outcomes at like 120 minutes aren't a lot different than they are at 90 minutes and and so i think that i think that to me sometimes i think that doctors jumping and clinicians jumping to one singular diagnosis and sending the patient down a singular diagnostic or therapeutic pathway has risk as well. Like if you miss the PE, if you miss the dissection, you send the patient to the cath lab in the middle of the night with no anesthetist and one cardiologist and one scrub nurse. So I think that you could turn this case the other way and have made it a dissection that you sent to the lab calling it a STEMI 
and we'd be sitting here having a different discussion. Right, and then taking that step back and looking at the big picture and making sure we're, like you said, you're not hyper-focusing on yeah. one diagnosis really helps in this patient. Yeah. And then, you know, also in, a lot of times these, these OMIs, as we're going to call them, you know, they have various EKG changes over time, right? I may have something and you may have nothing, and then later on they get a lot right. more. It, it's right, and that's always, that's always possible. And so diagnostic may be dynamic and it may occur over time so looking back at it from my standpoint from a in charge performance judge you discuss the serial killers on the way to the call you involve your student you talk through dissection you activated it based on patient advocacy you treated the patient's symptoms all i could say is i listened to the call come in and we interacted at changeover was i was just proud to be a part of the team there i thought that was that was bang up um we got to use therapeutic to our our momentum, therapeutic momentum, excuse me, to our advantage when we can, within reason. I think it's reasonable to remember that if therapeutic momentum sacrifices diagnostic accuracy, then maybe we're in trouble. Um, we got to work together. This was one where sometimes I know medics can get a little bit perturbed when their activation gets paused. I know emergency medicine docs can get perturbed when their STEMI activation gets stopped because it can happen to both of us, by the cardiologist to me, by me to you. I thought that Looking back, I'm glad that we were able to, to do that professionally and talk through it. Even even now, this is how we learn no, and how we it, get better. It, it was good, and I really appreciate it. Even, you know, was it a few weeks later, you came up to me at the hospital, and we're like, hey, I've been needing to follow up with you. I need to tell you about this case. Yep. And mm-hmm. so we were able to sit down talk about it and go over troponin. And, you know, now you have some outcomes. So you know when you see something similar to this again with those EKG changes and these sudden symptoms, you might have some more thoughts into what's going on. It's, it's the purpose of us doing this in general. That's why hopefully this series becomes, uh, becomes a, a staple because it takes our interactions with y'all and the good stuff that we do, the good stuff that y'all do, and it brings it full circle with the outcomes and the learning points. Not just for you in the run review. I put myself in the run review on this one. The EM folks out there fighting this battle, you know, ch- trying to change the STEMI paradigm, I got nothing but infinite respect for those folks trying to – change and improve our accuracy when recognizing acute myocardial infarctions it's hard as em docs to educate quote unquote cardiologists on acute ischemia and not come off as somewhat unhinged overbearing maybe a little uh you know table beating kind of kind of crazy so please send me ideas on how to have that discussion in that you don't think this is ischemia as a cardiologist, but I think it is as an emergency physician, and I'm going to tell you that I'm right and you're wrong. Whew, that's tough. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how we do that other than discussion and, and inquiry and trying to be inquisitive. I, yeah, yeah, and it gives me. I think it gives a lot of credibility to the cardiologist here that yeah, maybe in in the hindsight's 2020 that maybe. It's an imperfect decision-making world, and maybe he made the, he or she made the wrong decision. That being said, that person was also willing to come stand at the bedside with you, listen to the story, evaluate the patient. I think that's reasonable. What I don't think is reasonable is for someone, for you emergency physicians, residents, and faculty out there, to tell me over the phone that they, don't, they think that everything is okay. The sun is shining, Dr. Dixon. Everything is fine, right? But they've not come seen the patient. They've not looked at it. They've not looked at the imaging. They haven't done a bedside echo. So hats off to the cardiology staff. Uh, I think they did a stellar job on this one, actually. And then to give, and then to give 
unprompted feedback the next day. That doesn't yeah. always happen in the emergency Great medicine stuff. world, even as it doesn't in, in the EMS world. Sometimes the imperfect decision or even the wrong decision isn't negligent. It may just be complex. We need to remember that when throwing stones over, over social media and at other folks when we aren't in the room for these cases. This is one that could very easily be presented as, hey, this cardiologist didn't take the patient to the lab. Urgh. But like you said, they were in the room. They evaluated the patient. They looked at all the EKGs. They discussed the case with me multiple times. Feedback. Listen to the patient. Listen to the patient's wishes. Nothing negligent about this one. No, not at all. And then that closes with patient agency should always be included in our decision making. And sometimes in these situations that can get lost. So for version one of MCHD Paramedic Podcast, Tales from the ED, thank you, Brady, for joining us. No problem. Put me in the hot seat as the run review guy. So all the listeners out there can take a little little pleasure in that. I'm usually the one dishing it out, I guess. I can uh, take it as well, as you can see. Anything you want to add before we close out, Dr. No, Nixon? great, great idea, Casey. And Brady, thanks so much for bringing this case. I think it's, it's great, and I think it's going to be a fantastic series. Well, I think so, too. I really do. As always, if you have ideas, questions, thoughts, you want to heckle us, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us reviews wherever you listen to your podcast. We're at 185 or so now. We're shooting for 200. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode. Have a good day. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.